Good morning, church. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. What a beautiful morning. Beautiful outside. Beautiful inside. Good to see everybody again. Good to be able to worship again in person. It's a beautiful morning of song and celebration. But is it relevant? Will it last tomorrow? Is this Easter message, this story of Jesus rising from the dead, is this really something that is significant for your life given the, the troubles, the trials, the disappointments we are, have experienced, uh, are experiencing? It is relevant. It's up to the minute relevant. But don't take my word for it. Take Jesus' word for it. As we look at His word, as He speaks it to us, as He shows up, and He speaks His word to us in this John chapter 20, verses 11 and following. Listen as Jesus finds you this morning. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've put him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I'll take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She said, she turned and, and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless... I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side. 
I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This past week I gathered by Zoom call with some of my friends, my fellow pastors from across the city. We gather once a quarter, maybe a little more often, and we pray for each other. We're from various church backgrounds, various ethnicities, various parts of the city, men and women, but we're all united by this. We love Jesus Christ. We minister in His name, so we pray for each other. I'm one of the conveners with another pastor, and we start the prayer time uh, with a question usually just to get us sharing. And, and my question this week was to the most senior member of our group, a man who's been in the ministry many years, the Methodist pastor, very wise, very tender. I said, uh, Dr. McCain, this you've preached many, many Easter's, so... What's, what is going to be your approach this year? What's the angle at which you come at Easter? He sat back in his chair, almost rolled his eyes, was kind enough not to, and said, uh, George, I don't need a fresh approach. The message is, is exciting enough as it is, but I only have one approach. I take the same approach, the same angle every year. And I learned it as a young pastor from a professor of mine who said, Greg, you don't need to preach your best sermon on Easter morning. You'll feel that pressure. You, all those people, that high holy day of the year, don't, you don't need to feel it. You don't need to preach your best sermon on Easter morning. You just need to preach what is helpful to your people. George, he said, my people need help. Your people need help. My people, he said, are still afraid of the, of the virus. They've lost people to the virus. My people need help. They're grieving on this day, the death of Dr. King on this day, 53 years ago. They, they are grieving. On their, they're, they're worried. They need help. They're wondering about the issue of voting in our country. They're, they're worried about, they're still hurting from, they're still confused by the election. Your, your people, my people need help because their marriages are in trouble or they have wayward children or they've had disturbing diagnoses or they're, they're, they're worried about the Chauvin trial or they're concerned about the economy in the future. Our people need help. And we have the only message 
that brings true and lasting help. The message is Jesus is alive. It is a message that is timeless. We don't preach chasing the news. We don't preach chasing current events or the headlines. We would always be chasing our tail. We preach the way Christ preached. He preached these, these principles by which we can live through every terrifying and disappointing situation in the world. He has these principles that he shares with these three groups of people that he visited in this passage to answer every need that you have that can be put under one of three heads, despondency, disconnectedness, or disillusionment. And Jesus, because he is alive, can turn despondency into hope. He can turn disconnectedness into courage. He can turn disillusionment into faith. Mary was despondent. Mary Magdalene was despondent. The Bible tells us that she was one from whom seven demons had been cast. Possessed by seven demons, the devil had her in his grip. He was dehumanizing her. He was making an animal out of her. She was trapped by him, a slave to him. The Western tradition says that she was also a prostitute. There's no clear textual evidence for that, but why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't she also be sexually abused by the devil? But one day Jesus came to her and Jesus set her free. Jesus cast those seven demons out of her life. He restored her mind. He restored her health. He restored her to her family, to society. He told her how she could have eternal life. He didn't look down on her. He dignified her as an image bearer of God. He exalted her to be one of his disciples. He honored her with being the first to the tomb. She had experienced hope for the first time in her life, but now that hope was dead, it appeared. Jesus, her beloved, was dead. She just wanted to do one more kind thing out of appreciation for him to visit his tomb and give him an, an honoring burial, to honor his body with spices, proper, proper care. But he wasn't there. Now, insult has been added to injury. Someone's stolen the body. The angels ask her why she's weeping. Jesus asked her the same. The Greek is klio. It conveys the intensity of her weep. She's not just, she doesn't have trickling tears down her cheeks. She's not whimpering. She's wailing. Her heart is breaking. And Jesus sets her free from her hopelessness, not by his appearance. His appearance didn't make any impression on her. It was as if she couldn't see him at all. She took him to be the gardener. What was it that released her from her hopelessness? It was just the speaking of her name. He personalized her. Other people knew her name. At least a hundred disciples knew her name. But he said her name in a way that she uniquely recognized. He said her name in a way that uniquely personalized her. 
And Jesus is just as truly in our midst this day as Jesus stood before Mary. And you may not be able to see him just like Mary couldn't see him, but you can be transformed even without seeing him, just as Mary was, because he knows your name and he knows how to get into your heart and speak to you in a love language that only you understand. When his word was read to you, it was Jesus speaking, and it is his spirit that speaks into your heart today. If you're listening, he is speaking your name, and he is telling you that he cares for you. As one theologian said, the resurrection means that the world matters to God. The resurrection means that you matter to God. The resurrection means that your earthly life, what you're going through, the world you live in matters to him. And he loves you so much, he is not going to let it continue. He's not going to let the the sin scarring continue. God will not, the theologian says, tolerate injustice, violence, degradation. God will not tolerate persecution forever, the diminishment of image bearers, the redefinition of the nature of persons, the degradation of the glory of gender, the mystery of marriage, destruction of health, the hijacking of institutions that are intended to bring shalom to people. Jesus will not tolerate that forever. And though you feel despondent, Because you feel like hope has died. Hope has not died. Jesus is alive. And Jesus is speaking. And he will continue to speak and comfort and guide you until he has put every enemy under his feet. He also turns disconnectedness into courage. These disciples, though they've surely heard by now from Mary and from Peter and John and other women that Jesus is alive, they're still sheltering in place. They've locked the door for fear of the Jews. Now, this isn't an anti-Semitic reference. Uh, These disciples are Jews. Joseph of Arimathea was afraid of the Jews. He was a Jew. It's not an anti-Semitic reference. It's a, it's a shorthand reference to those who are seeking to persecute them, those who wanted to stamp out this Jesus thing, this Christianity thing. So they, out of prudence, had locked themselves for safety behind closed doors, like many of you have or, or are still doing. It's a prudent thing for a time to shelter in place, but it doesn't bring flourishing. It wars against our thriving. We were not made to shelter in place forever. We were not made to be disconnected forever. It's been true of us since the fall. Adam and Eve rebelled against the Lord. They've been seeking refuge. And we as a, have a natural reflex of anxiety, a natural reflex of, of fear, of fight or flight. That's the way we are, naturally wired. God didn't make us to be that way. 
While it may be prudent for a while, it wars against thriving. And even if you're sheltering in place with your loved ones or your family, that eventually wars against thriving too. It didn't take long for Adam and Eve to get tired of each other in the bushes. It didn't take long for these disciples to get tired of each other and start bickering. And I'm sure you've experienced, probably not in your family, but the bickering that occurs when you're shut up in one place together. These disciples were locked down. And Jesus came to the door. He doesn't stand outside the door. He doesn't, he doesn't ask politely, would you please let me in? He doesn't yell in there and say, what's wrong with your faith, you cowards? Why don't you open the door and come out here and face your fears? He doesn't do that. He's too rude for that. He just comes in. The doors were locked. We don't know how he got through the door. They're locked, but the locks didn't stop him. He either, he either translated himself through or he opened the door and came in. And again, the Greek is vivid for some of our Memphis City Seminary students have their Greek New Testaments in front of them. The Greek is vivid here. Aesta meson. He came into their midst. Greek scholars call that the pregnant use of the preposition. It means he came right slap dab in the middle of them. He went right into the center of their fear. He appeared in the midst of their mess. They couldn't lock the doors. They couldn't keep him out. He came in and did what? He gave them peace. He said, peace be to you. His presence brings peace. His presence is no less real in this service than it was in the midst of those disciples. His presence brings peace. And he speaks to them in such a way that he, he transforms them from their disconnectedness into, he, he replaces that with courage. Within a few weeks, we see them out preaching in the temples, in the streets, preaching door to door. They don't have the same fear anymore. They don't care who's going to drag them away. What happened? He breathed on them the Holy Spirit. He said to them in particular as apostles, I am giving you the power to forgive sins or to withhold the forgiveness of sins. That's a reference to his, his writing the New Testament through them, the gospels and the epistles. And there will be the, the prescriptions for how we find our forgiveness of sins. It's by receiving the righteousness of Christ that he offered on the cross that he rose to give to us to accept it in the place of our sin to be united with God the Father and to have the anticipation of heaven and those who ignore that those who deny that say I don't need that will not experience that forgiveness of sins. That's what he's promising here. And then he says, I'm giving by extension. He gives this message to us in the word of God that we can declare to people, this is how you may be forgiven of your sins. And the warning, if you do not, hell awaits. You say, I can, but I, I know that's all true, but, but I'm, I'm such a coward still. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't necessarily make you feel courageous. He enables you to do courageously. Courage isn't a feeling, it's a choice. It's acting out on his promise, the reality of his presence. I, I used uh, last week the illustration of, of George Patton's, General George Patton's letter to his son, a cadet 
at West Point at the time, his son Benjamin. I didn't read this section of the letter. And toward the end of the letter, he reminded his son of a story he must have told him often of Marshal Turin, the, the general just beneath Louis XIV. He was a 40-year warrior. He had battled for 40 years under Louis XIV. And as he was walking out to mount his horse for the last battle he would ever engage in, his aide-de-camp, a young man whom Patton said had never missed a meal and had never taken live fire, looked at his general and saw that his knees were knocking, his legs were shaking. And he said arrogantly, General, I would think after 40 years of battle, I'm, I'm surprised that a battle would bring such fear to you. Your legs are quavering. Marshal Turin said, if I had told my legs where we were going, they would not have been able to walk. They would be shaking more violently than they are. Patton applied it this way. He said, may our knees, though they will be quaking, though they will be trembling, always take us toward the battle. We've suffered from disconnectedness. The research, the, the stats are clear. We have a universal anxiety, a, 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 a propensity to, to, to a depression. It's, 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 it's put schism in, in amongst us. It's, it's driven us away from each other. We've chosen to believe the worst about each other. It's strained our relationships. It's taken, away from our, taken us away from our neighbors. It's taken us away from worship. Pray to Jesus who is here right now that he would replace that disconnectedness with courage that moves you toward people, toward those from whom you're estranged, toward those with whom you should be reconciled, toward those you've never paid attention to before, toward those who are disconnected from society, toward those who need the gospel and need to hear the good news. Jesus does that because he's alive and Jesus cures disillusionment, replaces it with faith. Thomas is the last one he visits here, and we can't be too hard on Thomas because he didn't, the, the others only believed in Jesus because they saw him, Mary saw him, Peter and John uh, saw the empty tomb, the, they eventually saw Jesus, the disciples saw Jesus, that's the only reason they believed, at least as far as they did, Thomas just wasn't there. He had the deadly blow of doubt. Thomas, like the others, was one who had put his hope in Jesus, who had put his faith in Jesus. For generations, they'd been trampled on by the Romans. They'd been taxed to death. They had been oppressed for as long as they could remember. Here was, here was Jesus who promised something different. He, he, he promised eternal life. He promised joy. He promised life. He promised hope. He promised a kingdom that would never perish, spoil, or fade. But now Jesus is dead. And his faith, it seems, is dead with him. Again, the Greek is vivid. Aeon me ido. Unless I see. If I don't see. Strong. If I don't see. 
I will never, ever believe. If I don't see, I will never believe. Remember when we studied the book of Exodus and talked about Moses showing up and then he, <clears throat> he, he had the good news. He said, I'm here. God sent me here. I'm going to lead you out. They're all excited about that. I'm going to take you to the promised land. Hooray, let's go. But things got worse. Pharaoh got mad, took the straw away from them. Life got harder instead of easier, harder to make bricks. And Moses inserts just a sentence in chapter 6 of Exodus. I'm going to give a little bit of interpretive translation to it. They could not believe because of their harsh treatment and bitter slavery. They could not believe. They had been traumatized. They had been wounded. They had been damaged by, by forces telling them constantly that they were not human, that they were slaves. They could not believe. I think we could translate this statement by Thomas the same way. Unless I see, which is never going to happen, I cannot believe. And Jesus shows up. Jesus walks right into their midst again through the locked door. And he finds Thomas. And he doesn't tell Thomas, what in the world is wrong with you? You've always asked the dumbest questions. And you've, you've always been so slow to believe. And then you're not even here when we had the first meeting. No, he doesn't do that. He says, do not disbelieve, but believe. Now, some of you are discouraged again. I thought there was going to be hope for me. In my little faith, you said. You, you may think this sounds like the, the advice I've gotten a lot in my life. Stop worrying. Don't worry. I want to say, why didn't I think of that? If I had just thought of not worrying, then that's what I would have done. Let me just turn that switch off in my brain. Do not be afraid. Oh, where have you been all my life? Do not, believe, do not disbelieve, but believe. But that's not the way this comes. This comes to Thomas in the same way Jesus said to the paralytic, pick up your mat and walk. Or to the, or to the, to the blind man, throw down your cane and walk. It's a command to do something that Jesus has enabled him to do. Rise up. Open your eyes. See, speak, believe. Thomas, reach out your hand. My Lord and my God. This is very much like the altar call I answered when I, from 40 years ago when I became a believer, Christian. I was despondent, I was disconnected, I was disillusioned, and somebody preached a simple gospel message, and he said, you may be worried, you may be afraid, you may be guilty, you may be shameful, you need Jesus, just lift your hand. I did, I didn't know any better. I lifted my hand. Jesus saved me. Not because I lifted my hand. It's because he had enabled me to do what he was commanding me to do. He enabled me to believe. I'm going to invite you to do the same in a moment.
just to lift up your hand as the first step of faith. Jesus restores faith. Before I do that, I'm going to tell you a story. Just down the road here in Cleveland, Mississippi, is one of the greatest baseball coaches in the history of the game. Not just because he knew the, the game so well, not just because he played it, but because he, he also loved Jesus. He loved the souls of his players. He cared about their lives. He was a generous man. As a faithful elder, First Presbyterian Church Cleveland, later Covenant Presbyterian Church Cleveland. His name was Boo Ferris. After playing for the Red Sox for a number of seasons, he retired and he did two stints as head coach at Delta State University. John Gresham was one of his players who didn't last very long. He got cut, but he was one of his famous players. Boo Ferris and I, and we never met each other, but we corresponded with each other because I told this story that I'm about to tell you and his pastor, one of my dear friends, shared it with him and then he wrote me and said, I'm the man you're talking about. Here's my autobiography and we corresponded till a few years ago when he passed away. Story is told about, about uh, Coach Ferris, Mr. Boo as the kids call him. He was walking down the street one day, he saw a little league baseball game going on and uh, he couldn't resist a baseball game. So he, he noticed there wasn't a lot of activity in right field. So he wandered over to right field where he could see the scoreboard. It was the, it was the top of the first inning and the score was 18 to zero. He noticed that all the balls were going over the left field fence. There's nothing happening in right field. So he engaged the right fielder in conversation. He said, uh, son, what in the world happened? Wh wh why are you getting beaten so bad? He said, Mr. Boo, I don't know what you're talking about. He was the, the scoreboard. It's 18 to zero. It's the top of the first half. What in the world happened that, 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 that you're losing so badly? Oh, no, no, Mr. Boo, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. We ain't been up to bat yet. He had every confidence. Didn't you run the score up as much as you want. When we get up to bat, we'll beat you. Delusional, but confident. Some of you think the game is over. Game is over. Because you've lost it. Or somebody has canceled you out of it. But the game's not over. The church is still in the game because the church and the people of the church are united to Jesus Christ. You may feel despondent. You may feel disconnected. You may feel disillusioned. But none of that is true. If you belong to Christ, you have hope. You have courage. You have faith. And, 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 and the score may look to you like you're losing and losing terribly, but you, you don't see the real score. Jesus is the one keeping the score. Jesus is the one winning the game. And Jesus is the one who will be at the final bat. Jesus is the one who will beat back all of his enemies, all of your enemies, until they are subservient to his rule and reign. Jesus 
Do not give up. No matter how light, how, how uh, low your faith is, how weak it is, reach out to him today. Would you pray with me? And as we pray, if you want to make that your first act of faith, reach up your hand to Jesus and say, give me faith. Take away my sins. Become the Lord of my life. Transform me into your disciple. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would help those who do not know you to trust you totally, your blood, your sacrifice, your resurrection. You're coming again. The rest of us believe, but help our unbelief transform us into a people of hope and courage and faith. In Jesus' name, God's people said, amen.